We're going to go into Daniel chapter 5 today, and uh, uh, what we'll be looking at is a, a bad news story, and that video would have set the bad news story up, but to help us understand the key issue behind this bad news story, let me uh, tell you a little bit about the iconic actor Morgan Freeman. I'm sure some of you have heard of him. I think it was about 10 years ago that Morgan Freeman raised people's eyebrows when he said he considers himself God. Maybe it was because he played the movie, uh, played God in the movie Bruce Almighty. That was 10 years earlier with, with Jim Carrey, if any of you uh, remember that. Uh, maybe that got to his head. Anyways, the question about Morgan's thinking came to the surface when he did a television documentary series that he hosted where he asked... Uh, uh, where they were just talking about material and philosophical questions about the universe, including the nature of God's existence. And the question that was being asked was, if there is a God, did we invent him? Freeman's answer was, yes, there is a God, and we are him. That God is a being that we have created in our own image. In, in another interview, Morgan was asked uh, if he was a God-fearing man. And he said, no, I... I don't fear anything. I am God. Now, Freeman reminds me of the last Babylonian king, King Belshazzar, who we find in Daniel chapter 5. Freeman's blasphemy shocks. Well, at least it shocks Christians. And we're going to see something maybe similarly shocking in today's story. Now, blasphemy doesn't have to be as obvious as those words of Morgan Freeman or King Nebuchadnezzar who we've been looking at for the last several weeks or King Belshazzar who we'll look at this week. Blasphemy is simply this. This is the simplest definition that I found. Blasphemy is the failure to take God seriously for who he is, that is, who he's revealed himself to be in the pages of the Bible. You know, blasphemy happens in the way that we speak. It happens in the lifestyle choices that we make. It happens depending on how we respond to God's word. Just hang on to this thought. Blasphemy is the failure to take God seriously for who he is, and you're going to see that in our story today. As we get into Daniel chapter 5, the year is 539 B.C. Nearly 70 years have passed since Daniel and his friends were brought in chains to Babylon. Daniel is an old man now well over 80. Nebuchadnezzar is dead. He's been dead for about 23 years. And Belshazzar, his uber-privileged, spoiled grandson, is on the throne. It was his dad, um, Nabonidus, who was actually the king at the time, but he was away for some sort of business. We know about Nabonidus not from the Bible, but from more recent uh, archaeological and historical work that has helped confirm this story. So there is actual archaeological evidence for, for elements of the whole book of Daniel. And, and this is how we know that Belteshazzar was Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. Now in the Hebrew Bible, you often give the title son to, to uh, someone who's a direct descendant. And you're going to see that in the story today. It's kind of confusing to us, but it wasn't to people back then. My guess is that, this is my speculation is that Nabonidus was away because he might have been seeking allies to uh, line up with Babylon as the Medo-Persian Empire was growing strong and making threats against Babylon. Babylonians didn't seem too worried about this threat. They were convinced that the walls of the city of Babylon were impenetrable, but the threat is growing nonetheless. 
This is speculation on my part, but I think it makes a lot of sense. What we do know is that Nabonidus left his son in charge of Babylon as he went on this journey. So Belshazzar is actually second in command and has assumed the role of king while his dad is away. So his dad's away and this spoiled rich kid throws this huge party, brings in the woman. Truth be told, these concubines and others, would, we would call them slaves and trafficking victims today. It's almost as if Belshazzar, or Belshazzar is throwing the, the largest frat party ever. Let me just read from the book of Daniel a little bit of what Daniel wrote. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. And the Aramaic word for wine there is lots of wine. And, and while Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his grandfather, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the kings and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So this is just a drinking party. It's an all-out kegger with, okay, maybe a hundred kegger or more. And we know that because, again, as I said, the Aramaic word for wine used in verse 1 to describe the party means lots of wine. And the king gets up and he's just going to start taking shots and I'm sure there's a ping-pong ball evolved and some guy's being held by his ankles. Anyways, the inebriated king decides, hey, let's go drink out of those special God cups, you know, those special Jewish God cups, that, that would be so cool. Now you will remember if you've been in this series that uh, when that Nebuchadnezzar conquered the nation uh, of Israel, they, they plundered the temple and in addition to taking slaves, they took articles from God's temple that were to be used for the sacred worship of the one true God only. But Nebuchadnezzar and his son Nabonidus, they had, both of them, they had way too much respect for these sacred items to ever misuse them. Way too much respect, but not this young Belshazzar. No, not at all. So he comes up with this wild idea. Let's all just get hammered and drink out of these sacred goblets and show that our God is the real God and their God is the weak God. And you can see where this is going, right? And God's like, not a chance, boys. You boys have crossed the line. I, the Lord God, will not be mocked. And what happens? Happens suddenly. There's no time to repent. God is done with Babylon and done with his young, foolish, God-forsaking king. And suddenly, as they're partying it up, the finger of a dismembered human hand appears and begins to carve a message into the plaster on the wall of the king's palace opposite this bright light stand. So there's a, literally a spotlight in the midst of the darkness so that everyone can see this floating hand. I know. Should have saved this message for next Sunday when it's closer to Halloween, but anyways. I mean, talk about freaky. Talk about terrifying, right? Imagine what that moment would have been like. You're at a party and a severed floating hand appears and begins etching three mysterious words into the wall and then it just disappears. This is how you sober up, right? Fingers start writing on the wall. Hey, when God shows up, people sober up, right? And the king is probably thinking, oh man, I think I've had too much to drink. I'm, I'm not in a good place. But the king looks around and everyone else is terrified and everyone else is seeing the same thing. The party stops. The DJ ends. The dancing is over. Total silence. As the king watches the hand write these letters into the wall, 
and we read that his limbs give way. One scholar suggests that the Aramaic words here may mean he had a bowel movement. I'm not sure about that. I think he's reading too much. But anyways, his knees are knocking. This previously cocky and arrogant king is now totally, absolutely terrified. So then the king calls for the enchanters, the astrologers, the diviners, the wise men of Babylon to come and interpret the meaning of the writing on the wall. And he promises big bucks, a, a chain of gold around their necks, a, a lifestyle upgrade to become the most hip in Babylon. And so they all give it a shot. We read, Daniel writes, then all the king's wise men come in. But they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. Enter the queen. Now the queen is not Belshazzar's wife. She is his mother or grandmother, perhaps Nebuchadnezzar's wife. She's more like the queen mother of Babylon. We continue to read. The queen hearing the voices of the kings and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom he called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So by now, Daniel may be retired, you know, put out to pasture, forgotten about, we don't know. Oh, and one thing that I'd like you to see. What do you think about the idea that Daniel was appointed chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners? Didn't Daniel know that these guys got their power from the evil one, if they had any power at all? What's he doing being in charge of all this? We don't know what Daniel did or what he didn't do when he was chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. My guess is he played the role in a way that didn't compromise himself personally, but allowed him to have good influence in Babylon. And when you look at, at that, there's a whole lot for you and me to consider about how we this Babylon of Fort McMurray, sometimes serving in some very questionable situations. Truth is, Daniel is acting in a way that Jesus commended. Jesus said, I am sending you out like sheep into the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. That's Daniel. He knows he's among the wolves and, and he acts with incredible wisdom. He's shrewd, yet he maintains his innocence. So that's just a side note about Daniel that I've actually mentioned before in this series. I call you Dare to Be a Daniel. Be wise as you live with Babylonian wolves and how that looks can sometimes be really surprising and, and still very much God-honoring. Hey, some Christians get a bit uptight about Halloween. I think we can learn something about Daniel from Daniel here. We have nothing, absolutely nothing to fear. So as we participate with our kids, we are wise as serpents and innocent as doves with no fear, but still wise. Enough said. If you want more, I, I wrote a blog on this a few years back that can be found at this QR code or, or you can message me for the link. There, there's something else that I'd like us to see about Daniel at this point. 
Even in his 80s, Daniel still had a reputation for being a man of God in a culture that rejected his God. They all knew that, Dave, uh, they all knew that Daniel followed the Hebrew God. They, they, knew, they knew that, but still they respected him at the same time. Friends, we need to learn how to live in a way that, that people who don't know God will still respect us, and then they'll turn to us when they reach the end of their ropes. This means we don't shove our faith or our values down other people's throats. Rather, we simply live out our faith with love so that people see Jesus in us, and then we enter into dialogue when that seems appropriate to do. That's what Daniel did. And all these years later, when he's no longer employed by the Babylonian government, when they realize that they need the God of the Jews or they need some other God, they, they need the true God they send for Daniel. So here's my question for you. If someone where you work, or, or maybe these parents on the team your kids is playing hockey on, if they had a need that required a Christian to love and, and pray and care, would people who are not Christians know you well enough to send that person to you? Are you public enough with your faith not arrogant, just public enough as you are living and loving like Jesus. Because if we don't uh, publicly live out our faith with wisdom and respect, then those around us won't know that we know God. And when they need God, they won't call on us because they don't know that we follow Jesus. And friends, that would be a huge tragedy. There are people around you who at some point in time need to turn to a Christian for help, for love, for prayer. Are you that Christian? Do they know you are a Christian that they can trust and turn to? And the queen remembers Daniel. She just gives him one glowing recommendation that the spirit of the holy God resides in him and, and that he can solve difficult problems. And she goes on and on. And so Daniel is brought before King Belshazzar. Now, Belshazzar would have known the stories about Daniel as well as his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar I'm not sure that he paid a whole lot of attention to them, but, but he knew about them. But in his arrogance and pride, he, he just didn't care. And, and I don't think that King Belshazzar is unaware that troops from the Medo-Persian Empire are headed his way, uh, if not at his doorstep. That's maybe my, my speculation why his dad is away trying to muster up some support. But he feels totally secure inside the walls that he believes are impenetrable, let them try if they want. They're not going to get through. I mean, throw this huge alcohol fest of a party when enemy troops are headed your way. It's just giving the Medo-Persian troops the finger, saying, we have no worries. We're just going to live life here in Babylon and party on. You're not getting through. But when the dismembered hand starts to write on his wall, well, that's terrifying. And the king offers Daniel big bucks, uh, a change in status. He can become third in power after himself and his dad and so much more, if Daniel can tell him what the writing on the wall means. Daniel declines his financial and status offers. Uh, Daniel says, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Daniel reads the message on the wall and hears what these words mean. Meaning, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. The king 
immediately believes that Daniel's interpretation is right on, but he acts as if he's still going to be king forever, or at least till dad gets back, and maybe then after dad passes on. He believes Daniel, but he doesn't get it. I mean, he doesn't, yeah. And even though Daniel initially turned all those gifts down, we read, then at Belshazzar's command, it just happened, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. It just happened automatically, and Belshazzar is totally unaware that it's about to all go crashing down. Because the next thing we read, the next thing in the very last verse of chapter 5 of Daniel, that very night, the king of the Babylonians was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. And again, we, we know that happened through uh, history and archaeology. The kingdom of Babylon fell and is overtaken by the kingdom of the Medo-Persians. That kingdom of silver that Daniel prophesied would replace the Babylonian kingdom of gold, if you remember my talk on Daniel chapter 2 a couple of weeks ago. What we know, or at least we can surmise from history and archaeology, is that there was no fight, no resistance by the Babylonians when the Medo-Persians busted into the city of Babylon because they were just simply unprepared. So how did this happen? I read one historian's very interesting take on how this happened. Didn't Belshazzar believe that the walls of the city were impenetrable? Well, yes, apparently they were. So what the Medo-Persians did was to divert a, a water supply, part of a river that was supplying water through the underground aqueduct system, and they stopped the water flow and, you know, for enough time, and they entered under the walls through the dried-out water system. I can't quite piece it all together, how that all happened without Belshazzar being aware, but it's a fascinating take on, on what might have happened that apparently there is some evidence to support this. They, they came in through underground aqueducts. Now this story that we've been going through in Daniel, right from Daniel chapters 1 to chapter 5, is about how God ultimately brought down the prideful, rebellious, unjust Babylonian empire and ultimately kept his promise to restore the people of Israel to their promised land. But this story also gives us a picture into how God deals with prideful, rebellious people in all times and all places. We talked about that last week with Nebuchadnezzar. Again, it's what we looked at last week when we quoted from the wisdom of King Solomon, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. I mean, that's just a universal truth. Pride goes before destruction. But there's, there's another message from this story, a, a much tougher message. As we read Daniel 5, we see that Belshazzar offends God from what we can see only once. I mean, I'm sure it's not his first time, but this is the first big offense that we get to see. And Belshazzar is immediately hit with irreversible judgment. End of story. He receives no offer of repentance, no hint of sympathy. In contrast, Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, he's like a repeat offender, right? He orders the nations to worship him as the God King. And, and when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego defy the king, Nebuchadnezzar has them tossed into a fiery furnace that he's heated up seven times because he's so angry at them. They, come throughout, they, they just come through that without a hint of smoke, untouched. I mean, it's a miracle. And that miracle gets Nebuchadnezzar's attention, and he repents. 
But that repentance, while genuine, doesn't seem to hold too strongly or for too long. And he goes on then to take credit for all of his greatness and power with no acknowledgement of God. And, and uh, after being warned about his arrogance, after a 10-year period of time, God graciously gives him to repent. He doesn't. And God's judgment kicks in. And Nebuchadnezzar is reduced to having an animal-like mind walking on all fours in the wilderness. It's a pitiful sight. But once Nebuchadnezzar looks up to God and acknowledge his sin and proclaims there's no God but the God of Israel, God forgives and restores him. And Nebuchadnezzar dies a believer. It's a story of God's incredible grace. And so you should be encouraged. The story uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, of, of Nebuchadnezzar tells us how we can blow it over and over and over again. But when we look up and confess our sin, God forgives and restores friends every time. Every time. And uh, my, maybe even for you right now, this is a time to pause and think. Maybe there's something that you need to look up to God for right now and repent of so that you can experience his forgiveness and restoration. Let God speak to you about that even now. But that didn't happen with Belshazzar. What's the difference? I mean, I, I can hear Daniel saying to him, even though you should have known that God forgives those who repent, you didn't. You would not humble yourself. You would not repent. And then we read, instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. Well, what's the issue? Belshazzar refused to learn from the example of his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. Friends, the problem was Belshazzar was unteachable. Hey, Nebuchadnezzar might have been one challenging student, but nonetheless, he learned. Nonetheless, he repented and, and acknowledged God. And, and that's all it takes to melt God's heart and gain forgiveness and restoration. We should all be encouraged by that. As fickle as Nebuchadnezzar was with his faith, he ended up on the right side of repentance, and it transformed his life there and for all eternity. But Belshazzar tosses the history book right across the room and flips the finger at the teacher and he makes a clear choice that he will reject the true God. Friends, Belshazzar is irretrievably unteachable. And that to me is a scary thought that you can actually become irretrievably unteachable. Now, you, will never, you and I will never know when someone reaches that point where they are irretrievably unteachable. We, we won't ever know that. And, and because uh, we will never know that, I never look at another person without seeing the image of God in them. I never look at another person without believing that they could turn around and follow God. I leave the issue of whether someone is irretrievably unteachable in God's hand, knowing that even through prayer that can change. But the message of this story is the heart has some harsh truth to it. Some will never repent. And so this is where I have a plea for you. Don't become so arrogant, so stubborn that you just close the door on God and what he wants to do in your life right now and for eternity. Don't close that door. Don't become irretrievably unteachable. Hey, 
Your, your life journey might be up and down and a little on the wild side. You might go get up, fall down, but hear me. Three steps forward and two steps back will get you across the room, right? And the message that God gave to Belshazzar is a message that he has for you and me today. Meaning, your days, my days are numbered. They are going to come to an end. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews would remind us, just as people are destined to die once, after that, to face judgment. Tekel, you have been measured and found deficient. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. Your days are numbered. You have been weighed in the balance and you have been found deficient. I know, some of you would say to me, Doug, I don't like a God of judgment like this. But don't you see how God is reaching out to you in his love and mercy like he did with Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar? How he has filled your life with warning after warning and, and is just chasing after you with his love. He doesn't want you to spend eternity separated from his love. He wants you to repent and come back to him now and forever. And if you hear the voice of God right now calling to you to get right with him for the very first time, or, or maybe calling you back to him, don't wall yourself up like Belshazzar did. Rather, as inconsistent as, say, Nebuchadnezzar was, you can repent like him and experience restoration. Will you say yes to the extravagant offer of grace, of life to the full, now and forever with Jesus? Will you say yes to Jesus? One other thought before we wrap up this morning. Daniel wrote this book for Israelites discouraged in Babylon. It's easy to get discouraged in Babylon where everywhere you look, Babylonians are in charge, right? We see them getting away with all kinds of blasphemy and justice and cruelty. They, they sin with impunity. Has God forgotten us? Is God still in charge? Does he remember us? Daniel is saying yes, he remembers us. He's saying yes to us today as he was saying yes to the Israelites in captivity so many years ago. God is with us. He has not forgotten us. Friends, the, the writers of the Bible want us to know that the days of wickedness are numbered. The true king will return and he will restore justice and take us home to the promised land to spend eternity with him. This is our hope. Our hope is in King Jesus. And that hope gives us strength to not only survive as exiles in this Babylon called Canada, but to thrive and shine as exiles in the midst of darkness and even hostility. Would you join me for a time of prayer? Father God, I, I pray for those who have yet to say yes to you, who have yet to repent of their sin, ask for forgiveness, and invite you to come and transform their lives, that they would do so even today. And if what I just prayed describes you, um, you have yet to become a follower of Jesus or you've fallen away from following Jesus, I invite you to pray with me this prayer where you make a commitment to follow Jesus. Just pray this with me in your heart. Dear Jesus, I have not always followed you as I should. Just tell him that. I have not always followed you as I should. Today, that changes. Today, I confess that I have not lived as I should. I repent. And I ask you to come into my life. I ask you to begin to do a life-changing work in me so that I can live for you now and forever. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
And hey, if you prayed that prayer and that was significant to you, would you let me know or let our prayer team know who will be up front here in a few minutes and let them pray further with you? And friends, can I just pray for all of us just a little further? Father God, for all of us, thank you. Thank you for encouraging us through Daniel that even in our own experience of Babylon that you are with us and remain in control of who is in control. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.